I am the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. It's the declaration that Jesus put forward to the people to believe in him. And the fallout from this declaration to feed on him was immediate. The crowd turned against him, and many among his larger circle of disciples, outside of the twelve, turned away from following him. And Jesus has gone from being a celebrated figure, attracting joyous crowds, to being a controversial one dividing public opinion. And now, as we turn to our passage this week, John 7, 1 through 13, we find that the Jewish ruling elites are looking to kill Jesus. And because of this, Jesus stays clear of Judea, which is to the south, where the Jewish leader's influence was greatest and Instead, he remains in Galilee to the north. Jesus has basically become a wanted man as the climate and circumstances surrounding him have turned hostile. Six months pass, marked by the nearing of a significant holiday on the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles a feast and celebration among the Jews dating back to the Old Testament days of Moses, timed to the harvest season of grapes and olives. And the feast occurred annually in the fall and ran for seven days, attracting faithful Jews everywhere to Jerusalem to participate. During the feast, people would build temporary structures of branches and leaves on city rooftops and all along the countryside to live in for the week. It's where the feast derives its name. This feast was a time for the Jews to present offerings to God and be reminded of what God had commanded Israel in Leviticus 23:43, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's been a challenging several months for Jesus and his disciples. And with the significant holiday approaching, it would have been an ideal occasion to spend time with family and experience the warm embrace of loved ones. That's kind of what family's great for, right? When you go through times of difficulty and struggle, that they're there for you to support you. So Jesus' brothers come to him to discuss plans for the holiday. But warmth, love, and unconditional support is not what Jesus gets from his family. Instead, he's met with hostility that in many ways mirrors the attitude Jesus is receiving from his enemies. In the Bible, there's not a lot of time or focus paid to Jesus and his interactions with his family. And for that reason, the things that are addressed about his interactions with his family are therefore a matter of great significance. And so, I ask you this question. What does Jesus teach us about family through his interaction with his brothers? Answer, for God, family is ultimately a matter of who you belong to. Isn't it interesting and in some ways good to know 
that the struggles that we all have or we commonly have as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, as it relates to the complications of interacting with family, was something that Jesus himself understood and knew and experienced. But we don't often think about the fact that Jesus indeed had an earthly family. He had a family, half-brothers, half-sisters, and he had to deal with the complications of relationship as it relates to family, just as you and I do. And let's be clear about this. As it relates to family and following Jesus, this indeed is not a simple matter. And in fact, often can be a very complicated one. Right? So when we ask this question about what it is that we learn, what it is that Jesus teaches us about family through his own interactions with his family, there is a lot of relevance for you and for me. So for God, family is ultimately a matter of who you belong to. Here Jesus, his brothers come to him and they're discussing what they're going to do for the holiday. And as you read it, if you read, if you read this passage, it can actually be read and seem in terms of his brother seeming very supportive. Hey, you should go. Make yourself known to your disciples. Make your works known and have them seen publicly so that they know who you are. You can read that passage and it can be read that way and you can, you know, think that there is a, some, some sense of supportiveness there. Except for the fact that as you read through and get to the end of the statements made by his brothers, John then rings in as the narrator and adds an important note that his brothers did not believe in him. Not even his brothers. So everything that they've said to him comes from a faithless heart. Given that, then when you read this interaction, when you read the words of Jesus' brothers, you actually find that it's not encouragement, it's not even wise advice. From a worldly standpoint, it's sarcasm. It's mocking. It's not support. It's their idea that Jesus is somebody who is a poser, somebody who's looking for publicity. He's looking to get his name out into the world. So their, st so their statement is, hey, given everything you've said about yourself, you need to be out there because nobody wants to be known publicly hides. And they say, so go leave, go to Judea, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And then his brothers add this word, if. If you do these things. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You know the, that if you do these things, the if, that comes up in Scripture. We've seen it before. And if you are reminded of Jesus before he enters into his earthly ministry, he goes out into the wilderness. Do you recall? And someone meets him out there. Satan. And Satan encounters Jesus and challenges Jesus three separate times. And in each occasion, the way Satan challenges Jesus by saying, if, if you are the Son of God. If, if, if. His brothers are not supportive. They don't have his back. These statements are made out of pride, family pride, and 
a certain level of shame at their brother who has probably made them somewhat of a laughingstock in their own eyes. And so they approach their brother and they offer these words. And Jesus, in responding to them, then says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. He says, look, it's not my time to go to Jerusalem. Given everything that's going on, it's not my time. But it's always your time. You can go anytime you want. There is that statement from the surface, which is true. But Jesus is also talking about something far deeper, which is he's talking about the will and timing of the Father, the plan of God. And Jesus is always functioning and working on the clock of heaven, not on the clock of the world. So even as his brothers mockingly offer this worldly advice to go to Judea, Jesus says, now is not my time. You can go. And he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Here Jesus is drawing a very clear line. When he says you can go and he says the world cannot hate you, the reason he says that is because he's saying, hey, you already belong to the world, so the world won't hate you for it. As much as their family, Jesus is saying, look, you're my brothers, but not, you're not really my brothers. In a deeper, larger way, Jesus is saying, you're not really my brothers because you belong to the family of the world. You see, when we talk about the fact that for God, family is ultimately a matter of who you belong to, there's two groups, two families to which God looks at everyone. You either belong to the family of the world or you belong to the family of God. So that even in and among families that we belong to, even as Jesus belonged to his family, his half-brothers and sisters, ultimately, in a much bigger way, if you belong to the family of the world for Jesus, then you don't belong to the family of which he's a part. And so Jesus' brothers and Jesus have this exchange. And the irony of Jesus' brothers mocking is that they are indeed actually correct. He has come to reveal himself. When people try to mock God, they don't realize that there is actually some truth in what they're saying, just not in the way that they understand it. As his brothers are accusing Jesus of being a publicity hound, of being somebody who wants to make a name for himself in the world and be known by the world, they mean it in all of a completely different way. But the irony is, they are correct. Jesus has come to reveal himself to the world, just not in the way that his brothers think. And as we look forward on the timeline of Jesus, we know that this is the case. They're telling Jesus to go out there and show these signs and prove himself mockingly. Well, go do it if this is who you are. And Jesus, for all intents and purposes, says, this is not my time, but I will indeed make myself known to the world when I rise up on that cross. But Jesus looks at his brothers, even though they're his brothers. They share the same mother, but they do not share the same father. And because they do not share the same father in heaven, they are not really his brothers. Commitment and relationship to the truth is what identifies members of the family of God. Commitment and relationship to the truth. 
And for this reason, Jesus is hated by the world. Even as you're telling me to go there publicly, that's why I'm not going to do that. Because I'm hated by the world, they're looking to kill me. Why? Because I have told them the truth. I tell them the truth, and they want to kill me for it. And what is this truth? This is the truth that we touched on last week. The truths that people don't want to hear. And therefore, it's why Jesus' words are so offensive to people, right? Jesus' works are not offensive. Nobody ever complained about Jesus' works. Well, Pharisees did because of the timing of it, I guess. Interesting how those guys always found a way to complain. But normal people did not ever complain about Jesus' works. Jesus' works are celebrated. What about Jesus offends people? It's always his words. It's always Jesus' words of truth about himself and about the world itself, the people in it. And because of the fact that Jesus declares this truth, he says, I'm hated. The only blood relationship that often we focus on in this world is the family one, right? It's often the relationship that we put above all else. Because in the end, how does it go? We're family. And I don't think that that's not valuable or, you know, not something of worth. Of course, I mean, even with my own family, I, you know, I, I love and care for my family. But in this world, isn't it often the struggle that in belonging to God and his family, we're often in this world family with people who belong to the family of the world. And we're challenged with how to deal with this. I'll start off by saying that the only blood relationship that ultimately matters is the one that is found in the blood of Jesus. I want to highlight and say this again. This is not to diminish the value and meaningfulness and importance of family, the family you're born into. But let's take a moment just to take a step back and think about life in a much larger sense than our own homes, our own parents, siblings, children, spouses, all of that stuff. Isn't life and the kingdom of God far bigger than our individual families? Isn't our identity in Christ far bigger than that? And the answer is yes. Because in the end, what family we were born into won't matter, right? What family we were born into won't matter. What will matter is what family we belong to in the end. So in the grand scheme of things, yeah, family matters. But in a bigger sense, belonging to the family of God matters so much more. Because it has eternal connotations, forever connotations. Whereas our families here and now don't have that. But sometimes we don't take time to really think about that. And in fact, one of the struggles we have as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, is that we can make family and belonging to the family that we were born in into here in this world more important than ultimately the family of God that we belong to eternally. Family is a challenging thing. And I've seen so many Christians struggle with it because of how much we love our family, our loved ones, our parents, our siblings, our extended family, our adopted family, our maybe even the family we make, right? In the world, sometimes we call family not just the family of blood, but the family we make, our friends, 
our loved ones. And that family could be made up of many different kinds of people. And that becomes the great challenge and the rub. When we have family in this world, well, how do we then deal with that when we also belong to the family of God? The only blood relationship that ultimately matters is the one found in the blood of Jesus. But let's address this very question. How are Christians to apply this new reality? The reality of belonging to the family of Jesus, the family of God, to our own families. Whether it's the family we were born into by blood or the family we make, how are Christians to apply this new reality to our own families? Answer, a new orientation to the purpose and expression of love. A new orientation to the purpose and expression of love. We need to have that. A new way of looking at what family is and how we really look at the purpose of family and how we express love to family. You know, the purpose of bringing loved ones into the family of God is the purpose that stretches out above and beyond everything else. We belong to the family of God if you belong to Jesus. Amen? That is the greatest and most important belonging that there is in life. So when we talk about the purpose of loving our loved ones, our family in this world, then of course, the purpose must be for us to bring our loved ones into the family of God. That's why it's incongruent to be Christians who say that we love our family in this world and yet have no interest in bringing that family into belonging to the family of Jesus, the family of God. Amen? Makes no sense. How does that work? It doesn't. But the purpose of bringing loved ones into the family of God is the purpose that we need to newly orient ourselves with. That's the purpose. Maybe in your interactions with your loved ones, your family, that's actually not the purpose with which you've been operating. Maybe your operation, your purpose has been all about loving God being and belonging to the family of God and then loving your family here on earth and your loved ones who are not part of that family separately, differently, apart from that. And as long as no one is offended, then that's all that matters. If you belong to the family of God, how can you be okay with not wanting your own loved ones to be part of that family as well? I pose that question to you as one to wrestle with because I think every Christian should and needs to. This brings us, though, to the second thing, about this new orientation. First, there's the purpose, and second, there's the expression. Let's talk about expressing love, because that's what we do with family, express love for our family, our loved ones. That's why they're called loved ones. The true expression of love reflects the purpose. If your purpose is not to bring people, your loved ones, your family, into the family of God, then definitely how you express love to them will reflect that. Jesus has this encounter with his brothers. And do you notice Jesus has this way about him, even in the previous chapters in John, where there's a short mention of Jesus' interaction with his family. You see this kind of separation Jesus kind of builds between himself and them. If you're kind of reading the passage, you see it. He tells his brothers, no, you go ahead. I'm not going with you. You're part of the family of the world, and that's why they don't hate you, but they hate me. Jesus keeps 
pushing them over there while he stands over here. He keeps making distance between himself and his family. Do you see that? That's something that he does. And we might immediately look at that and say, that's not love. Jesus, how can you say that you're love when you don't seem to love your family very much because you keep putting distance between yourself and them? Then I guess it really matters how we think about love. We often think about love in a very worldly way. But Jesus is thinking about love in a very godly way, in a very kingdom of heaven way. How so? It's only by separating from his family that Jesus can truly love his brothers. It's only through separating from them that Jesus can make it possible for family reunification. What does it mean, separating? Meaning separating from their agenda and instead carrying out God's agenda. Do you notice his brothers are telling him what he should do? They're laying out their agenda, and Jesus responds by putting distance between himself and them and putting out the fact that he's in sync with God's agenda, the Father's agenda. The easiest thing for Jesus to do would be not to offend his family, to show worldly love and try to keep the peace. How does that usually work? In my experience, when you do it that way, what ends up happening is the one who belongs to the family of God feels more tempted and more drawn to being part of the family of the world than the other way around. That's been my experience. More times than not, that's generally the case. For every Christian, for every disciple of Jesus that tries to match the agenda of their family rather than the agenda of God, I constantly see that struggle. Here Jesus puts that separation between them because only in that can his brothers see where they stand and that it's not with him. It's only when a person sees that they're not on the same page with Jesus that they can see that they need to become on the same page. For Jesus' disciples, we can really only love those in the world by separating ourselves from those in the world when it comes to agenda. It doesn't mean abandoning family, you know, you don't love them, see them, or affiliate with them in any way. It's not, I'm not talking about that, and that's not what Jesus is talking about either. But Jesus is making it very clear that when it comes to agenda of which family we belong to, that matters a heck of a lot. Let me ask this question of you. How do you love your loved ones? How do you love your family? Is it excellent in a worldly way only? Or is it excellent in a godly way? Is it excellent in a heavenly way, in the kingdom of God way? Because this is deeper love that Jesus is expressing. It is deeper, more profound love that seeks the better for another. You know, in my experience, when you love somebody and you want better for them, it taxes the relationship. It's not an easy relationship or a simple one. Because often is the case is that when you want better for someone, your loved one doesn't see the better for themselves, right? So if you want better for your loved one, for your family, it's not going to be an easy one. It's not going to be a frictionless one. Not by embracing their loved one's brokenness from God, but rather facilitating reunification with him. This is how we love our family. 
How do you love your loved ones? Is the way that you interact with them and love them worldly? This, by the way, this passage where Jesus says, the world does not hate you when he says this to his brothers, this is the first time that the world is used in a group connotation that is negative. Up till this time, it's always for God so loved the world that he came to save. It's always been used that way till now. This is the first occasion where Jesus now says, the world. And he's now talking about it from the standpoint of brokenness, sin, and a family to which all people belong if they don't belong to the family of God. Don't love your family who are not part of the family of God excellently like the world does. Because if you do that, the world might look at you and say, you love them, you love your family, your loved ones excellently, beautifully. But in the eyes of God and his kingdom, that's not a deeper love. That's not a kingdom love. Families that we all belong to represent a bigger and better family to which was coming. Do you notice that everything in scripture are always about this picture of something bigger, something better that is coming? Jesus is the true bread from heaven, not manna. Our families are a picture of a bigger and better family to which was coming and to which many of us already belong. And quite a few of us have the blessing of this, that both our earthly families and our heavenly families are the same. I mean, I think that's the most beautiful thing, that the family we were born into and our loved ones that, uh, that make, comprise our family are part of God's family. There is nothing more beautiful than that. Because that's what it means to then share fully in fellowship together. That's the best of every possibility. Amen? That's what we should all be aspiring for. But that kind of love needs to come from you, from me. Because not all our loved ones are part of the family of God. And we need to stop thinking that the way that we bring people into the family of God, especially among our loved ones, is by catering to the world. I'll give you a quick little jump to the rest of the story. Later on, of course, Jesus' brothers, the very ones in this passage, do come to faith. And we read about them, we hear about them. And they are pillars in the church that help spread the gospel and hold the unity of Christ's family strong. How did that happen? Because of the love that Jesus expressed for them. Enabled them to see where they were and where they were not. So likewise, who are those people in your life who are not part of the family of God that you need to reassess how you interact with them? And I'll add another. How do you interact with your family of God? Do you love them as the way the world loves? Or do you love one another the way that Christ does? I think for us, it's a challenge of the highest order and the best kind to love in a deeper way and a better way to love as Jesus loved. I leave that with each of you to wrestle with, to contemplate, to pray over, to discuss together that we may be disciples of Jesus who follow him to the end and really add to the family and kingdom of God to which Jesus will return to.